Hello and welcome to Private Practice Podcast from myself, Daniel P. Brown, in the London Private Practice Podcast studios. And hello from James here in Casablanca, which means that like last time, I'm talking to you, the listener over here, and I'm talking to Dan over here. I did an exaggerated motion there to make it all the more comically relevant for the listener. It was a very funny listener. I mean, to be perfectly honest, like you really are missing out if you if you don't get to see this live. <laughs> so, uh, in at number six. In at number six on the list of cognitive distortions is... Hang on a second. <laughs> I, I feel like we did number six. So, obviously, uh, James is picking up straight where we left off. Guys, we're talking about... Uh, cognitive distortions. We're talking about the way that your brain can play tricks on you, um, and we 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 started getting down to the you know cognitive behavioural um, uh, what would you call it? There are uh, you know the bread and butter of looking at how our mind distorts the way that we think and and, and kind of um, makes its own logic and 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 turns things that might perhaps not be fact based into facts and turns those fact-based ideas into beliefs sorry non-fact-based ideas into beliefs and then how our brains roll these thoughts and ideas around our head and they actually affect how we behave how we feel our emotional state our psychological well-being our relationships and how we interact with each other but of course James didn't want to allow you any kind of you know um, backtracking or any kind of reminder of where we were at he just wanted to get straight on in there and say number six in the list. Um, so um, some of the most famous uh, behavioural scientists, uh, psychologists and therapists use cognitive behavioural therapy, which is a way of, or have developed cognitive behavioural therapy, which is a way of kind of exploring our thoughts and our feelings and looking at how they affect our behaviours and how the, you know, the the triad, if you like, or the, um, the the tripod, if you like, has these three uh, legs and they affect basically all that humans do. Uh, and, and they use it to help people behave in a more productive, constructive and happier, healthier way uh, for the benefit of their, you know, uh, well-being. Um, so we're looking at the way the, the mind plays these tricks and, and we're going through the... James's top 10 list or the behavioural scientist's top 10 list of cognitive distortions. Last week we managed to get to number five or six um, and James is starting again at six this week so perhaps we didn't finish it fully. And in at number six, James, is jumping to conclusions but part two... I'd already done that, by the way. What had you done? I'd already jumped to conclusions. Which conclusion had you jumped to today? Okay, I'm going to have to explain the joke. Last week we talked about uh, mind reading um, and uh, jump to conclusions brackets sort of fortune telling refers to the tendency to make conclusions and predictions based on little to no evidence and holding them as gospel truth prejudice uh potentially but in essence we're in this circum in this example we're prejudiced towards ourselves 
um, and obviously sometimes others. Um, one example of fortune telling that uh, PositivePsychology.com gives us is a young single woman predicting that she will never find love or have a committed relationship and never have a happy relationship based only on the fact that she's not found it yet. There is simply no way for her to know how her life will turn out, but she sees this prediction as fact rather than one of several possible outcomes. What do you think to that, James? I mean, I think that's what most people do all the time because you don't have enough time in the day to actually... Let me finish that sentence and then I'll go back and change it. You don't have enough time in the day to do the kind of analysis that might take place in cognitive behavioural therapy in every encounter you have. So now I rewind myself and I say, well, potentially you have enough time in the day if you set yourself virtually nothing to do and then you can spend as much time as you want um, paying attention to, uh, to being in the moment, just doing one thing in one day. But if you have a long to-do list and you're not necessarily paying that much attention, so therefore your your mind isn't focused on what you're doing, it's especially the case with phones and email and things when you pay attention for a few minutes to something you've read and then a few minutes to the next thing that flashes up and then um, you have, you're, you're multitasking, which realistically I don't think anyone can do effectively, then you're setting the conditions to be completely incapable of doing anything other than jumping to conclusions because jumping to conclusions is a necessary result of not having enough time to actually think about the stages between your distorted opinion and the conclusion you draw from it. Because if you spent ages thinking about every single logical thread between them you'd realize that your conclusion is not solid and you would feel ridiculous holding that position so having a ridiculous conclusion that you've jumped to demonstrates that you haven't spent time paying attention to it yeah okay but part of what is happening in all of these cognitive distortions is that we as uh you know, we as kind of private um, thinking beings are coming up with ideas that affect how how we are in day to day life. So I think most of us with um, a little bit of time, a little bit of space um, and no um, recognisable or diagnosable mental health condition and potentially in a healthy mindset can probably tell when we're generalising and sometimes even tell when we're fortune telling or mind reading um, or we are you know, disqual you know thinking very negatively um, or we are filtering out all of the positive information or we're generalising um, or we're black and white thinking. We can probably tell when we've got a bit of space and time but that doesn't necessarily mean that when we do these things in the moment that we recognize them that we are aware of how we are um distorting our reality using what seems like very um reasonable thinking in the moment you know um but all of these different um cognitive distortions are things that that all of us do okay so that's point 1 in answer to your analysis secondarily in answer to your analysis 
it feels very real because our thoughts are in our own voice. Our thoughts are in our own voice and most of us up to a point trust ourselves, which is probably the wrong thing to do. <laughs> and the, the, the trouble is we get a lot of messages from, you know, especially from social media about self-belief and believing in yourself and you know the right thing. But actually, if our brain is then playing tricks and trying to get to the right answer through inadequate analysis, which is what you were talking about, right? Yeah. If, if we're meant to trust ourselves and believe in ourselves and know that we're right, and if everything that's coming up in our head is actually a kind of, a, you know, a half-assed analysis of the facts and facts that have already been um, distorted and, and pushed around and, and aren't really facts but have over time turned into beliefs about ourselves, then we're not really going to come up with a useful, constructive, realistic analysis of anything that we're thinking i saw a little girl probably about eight years old just this week and on her t-shirt it said only do what your heart tells you i wish i'd stopped her and just delivered everything that you said <laughs> yeah. um uh, actually <laughs> <laughs> don't do that you might end up killing your husband um if she were married um which i'm hoping at the moment she's not um but uh, I, I guess what I'm trying to say to you is the whole point of this is that as human beings, and if we do um, think back to episode one in this series, we talked about that thinking fast and thinking slow and the different kind of theoretical systems that we have for analysing the data that's going in through all of our senses and through our experiences. And then like thinking about what have we actually learnt in order to process this data, analyse it, and come up with something that is realistic, because we aren't taught this in schools. Um, I think the closest you get to in school is probably, actually, probably after school, probably university, is you know critical think thinking modules. But generally, critical thinking modules are applied more commonly to um, academic analysis of topics. We aren't taught to um, come up with a healthy and enjoyable way of analysing the way that we think, which is why therapy is, and I, I don't mean this critically, like big business for us adults, because we are fucked by the time we get to adulthood, full of all these inconsistencies and discrepancies and failures and emotions and... and um, inability to process them in a way that comes up with a nice, rational, James Hall, well-analysed answer that is factual, makes sense and helps us in our day-to-day -day life. Uh, can we go over one or two of the things that you said? Um, firstly, when you're talking about jumping to conclusions, um, I don't know how minuscule you're going. So, for example, um, I will never fall in love is a big thing but then I don't need to look at my feet when I'm walking obviously if you fall in a hole and die is a big thing but usually it's a small thing so for so what I'm saying is that when you're walking down the street pretty much everything you're doing is a Daniel Kahneman's type one reactionary uh, you're not laboriously thinking through how you pick up one foot and put it down and checking the surface to make sure it's flat and stable before you put your foot down and mindfully having a, a, a very detailed comprehension of your body weight distribution before you 
lift the next foot and so on. Walking is an automatic process, so therefore most of it involves some kind of jumping to conclusions. You assume the ground is flat, you assume that you're, you're not going to suddenly become heavier or lighter, you assume that you're not going to step on something that gives way into a hole and so on. And then, so therefore, when, for example, you're on an escalator and it's not moving, it feels weird. When you think that you're about to step out of a car onto a pavement that's the same level, but you didn't notice the person reversing a bit and there's a step, you kind of either put all your body weight down too soon and then you lurch, or you continue to accelerate your foot, thinking there's plenty of more space between it and the pavement, and there isn't, and it hits the pavement hard. And then you're taken by surprise because you jump to conclusions. Um, and those, those are just... I mean, I, I assume it's the same process, thinking I don't need to look at the pavement, I can just put my foot there, and I'm never going to fall in love. But uh, is it? Um it's important to differentiate between a kind of a, a learned learned behaviour that is a kind of a physical necessity, walking and deciding on what might happen in your future. I, th- I think they're slightly different. Uh, I don't know the, whether those two, those two... That's a great comparison, is my initial feeling, James. Um, OK, so what about things that you have to do in daily life that then affect your emotions... So let's say the the example I just gave where the pavement had a step that you didn't expect makes you either lurch or hit the ground too soon. Um, It's something that is a blip in your life and you've forgotten about it moments later and it has no consequence. But if you are the kind of person who works with lots of people and deals with a hundred different people a day and you don't have the time to pay attention to people and you just assume that most people are the same you know like you sit in you sit in a welcome desk and most people come in and behave in the same way and you start to develop habits and patterns that whereby when you're introduced to someone new you you jump to conclusions about how they will behave and you start to interact with them on autopilot so you're talking but you're not thinking about what you're saying you're not paying attention in the moment you then start to treat people in a different way to another person who maybe works in isolation and then every time they have a social interaction they pay attention to everything yeah okay okay go on give me give me the questions that are bothering you about this give me the 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 yeah what's bothering you about this example almost or this this idea because it's not possible to pay attention to every single thing around you and every single move you make. Um, it's not possible. I don't... I'm, like, right in front of me, for example, is a wardrobe full of clothes. I could not give you a comprehensive inventory of everything in that wardrobe, even though it's right in front of me. I'm not paying attention to it. I'm listening to you and I'm talking. Um, at the same time, uh, if, if you walk down the street you don't pay attention to everyone who walks past you. You don't pay attention to everywhere you put your foot. Um, And some of those might be quite trivial. So then I'm moving on to a a different level, which is that, for example, in, in a social life, you might get into the habit of not really paying attention to... I certainly think I may have done this... Right, right. ...many times. I don't pay attention to people's um, facial body language. I don't take 
clues from them. So I might be irritating them and they're demonstrating that in their face and I just plough on and carry on because I haven't been paying attention to that. Um, and so that's when I'm kind of jumping to conclusions like I don't need... To, the conclusion in that situation is... I know how to talk to someone. I don't need to read their face. I just do what I always do. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that yeah, that is absolutely fair enough. I I I, I don't think I can argue with that. But I think that's more about um, be. I, I don't feel like that. That is a conscious conclusion that you've made or do you no, do but you, that's what do I, you... no it's no 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 it's not a conscious conclusion that i've made and so in order to, if it was a problem so i don't pay attention to people's facial expressions and body language and therefore i'm not very good at communicating and people don't like interacting with me because i don't pick up on clues that most people would pick up on and therefore i have all these dissatisfactory social interactions and i don't really understand why and it's a problem in my social life I need to know to stop jumping to conclusions and to be more mindful and pay attention in the moment of talking to people. But it's difficult to identify the problem when you're jumping to conclusions all day, every day, because you have to. You can't pay attention to everything. So it's too simple to say, well, if you don't pay attention to someone's body language you won't pick up their visual clues as to whether or not they're enjoying or dissatisfied during the conversation. It's, it's easy to say that, but it's too difficult to know that that's the problem sometimes because what else are you not paying attention to? It's among all the things that you don't know because you're not paying attention to them, so therefore it's amongst the things that are seemingly impossible to solve. And in other words, let me make it different. Let me make it easier. No, no, no. Let me stop you there because that's really useful. In essence, you've given really a really good grounded example of why therapy is useful, even to those of us. <laughs> sorry, I do not include myself in that. <laughs> even even to those of you who are happy in life. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Even to those of us who have elevated to a nirvana-esque plane of existence um, the long-term listener will know that i'm perfectly happy to make statements like that <laughs> yeah yeah so um you're right so we don't we don't as human beings have the capacity probably and all the training or the education to be able to be present continuously to recognize all of the things that we should take on board especially in our personal relationships about how the other person is communicating with us and even if we are um present enough to be able to actually think oh i need to pay attention to body language i need to pay attention to facial expressions to tone of voice to context i need to also recognize that in myself and my interactions i need to think about these things i need to process these things the the ability that we have to be able to then do it and get it right or know what the other person is thinking feeling and expressing through their body and their face and their their um mouth <laughs> their voice they're talking their words um it's really really difficult but therapists especially you know highly trained highly competent therapists are absolutely in tune with doing that and yes they do it for you or with you for an hour or 50 minutes a week once a week maybe twice a week that hour enables us to become more in tune with how to do that with others 
how, how to know how to react when we don't know how to react, how to know what to say and how to um, explain ourselves when we're not really sure what we're thinking or feeling, um, how to, to um, divine or to, to um, explore what someone else is saying to us when it's really difficult to understand them, you know, like when someone's angry with you or someone's irritated with you or someone's just suddenly not talking to you or you're picking up something from someone but you, you don't know what the, the message is that they're sending you. That is why therapy is such an incredibly useful experience and tool. It's not just I am sad, I don't want to be sad or I am anxious, I don't want to be anxious anymore. Please, therapist, make me better because that's not really what it's about. I mean... With CBT, obviously, they really want to take away some of the thoughts and feelings and cognitive distortions uh, that get in the way of us being happy. But they don't then make you happy just because they've pointed out to you that you are fortune telling or you are you know, predicting negative outcomes or you are um, thinking in black and white. That doesn't make you fucking happy and it doesn't change the way that you interact with other people. But it does start. It is part of that education and training in how to become more human relationship and human emotion and human thinking savvy um, and how to use those techniques to get better at it um, other than in your you know pretend world James like perfection doesn't exist if for example my problem is the, the one that I just gave not reading people's body language and if you turn up and you just are like an umpire at a tennis match watching me talk to someone yeah and you make notes of all the things that i get wrong and the other person goes away dissatisfied with the conversation and goes to talk to someone else and i have the uh, the the self flattering rationale in my mind that there was nothing wrong with my excellent conversation and the other person must just be boring or they didn't understand it or they had nothing to contribute or whatever and they're just yet another disappointment and hopefully one day soon um, I'll be lucky enough to have uh, the right kind of person to come my way and finally I will have that fulfilling conversation that I deserve you can then say you can then play it back to me and say uh, here's a time when you were just plowing on with the conversation and not letting the other person respond. Here's the time when um, the other person was desperately trying to think about what you were saying, but you didn't stop your monologue. Here's and, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Or you know, here's a time when the other person was um, actually interested in you, but um, you were too interested in something else that you weren't paying attention to. Whatever. Then all of my distortions of that situation suddenly evaporate because you're the person who has seen from an outside a third person perspective what happened I can't see that so it I, I would never have known that my problem was not picking up on other people's body language until you enlightened me as a third person and we've talked about how in therapy the here and now even though the therapist is not there when you're talking to someone when you talk to the therapist, they can tell if you don't pick up on their own cues, if you deliver monologues that are inappropriately length or timed, and then they can uh, <laughs> they can jump to their own conclusions that you probably act like that with other people. Um, so it requires a, 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 an intervention of some kind, because when you just explain to me that... Um, 
picking up on someone's body language is a way to improve my social interactions and that jumping to conclusions about knowing how to have a conversation is based on zero ground for effectiveness and when you play back the conversation I've just had with someone it was ineffective and I can see that it all makes sense but it's something that could never ever occur to me in a lifetime without someone pointing it out right um I I think so you know I think concluding with something that you couldn't in a lifetime work out I, I disagree so I, I, firstly, I think that very few people are naturally good at this. I think if you are, if you have certain psychological conditions, you may well be better at some of these things. You know, so for example, uh, certain pe- certain people with certain kinds of anxiety may well be way more attuned to picking up whether you know people have an emotional state that they're not talking about or uh, certain people with um you know who've who've been through difficult troubling traumatic life events might be way more attuned to danger so might recognize other people getting angry more quickly um and and for you what you're saying is you wouldn't in a lifetime be able to recognise and register other people's emotional states. I think a lot of it is about practice and focus. So, like, you could Yeah, choose... but how would I know to practice that? You've already identified it yourself. No one's no, told you No, 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 sorry. That. That, this is where I think it's falling apart because I haven't identified it. I'm saying that you, as a third person, identify it, not me. I don't know how to identify... Let me, let me just do it more... Instead of an example where I use all kinds of descriptive language to colour it in, let me just do it more as a sort of like a, a, a mathematical formula. People jump to conclusions. We don't know exactly why, but you have to do it because you can't pay attention to everything in life. So we take that as a given. So therefore, here's the situation. I jump to conclusions... And that's my problem. But the mere essence of jumping to a conclusion is that I don't know I'm doing it. Therefore, I don't know what my problem is. Therefore, how can I possibly know what my problem is? And therefore, I never solve it for the rest of my life until someone observing me sees me jump to a conclusion. From their third person perspective, they are able to notice that thing happening. Okay, so, so just you're talking to me as the listener then, right? Not as James. In essence, if you have no problems in your life and there are no relationship issues, no concerns, there's no um, fallout, no arguments, you're doing well at work, you're successful, you're happy, you know, your, your, your peers and your family um, uh, express love for you and enjoy your company and, you know, all of that is, is, is a real thing, then you're a perfect person who has no problems, okay? Obviously, there are conditions that might get in the way of one's awareness of oneself, but generally, they will lead to problems. But then, if I'm that perfect person, I'm still jumping to conclusions all day because it's impossible not to. It's just that yeah. I'm, ex- I'm just a, a perfect algorithm and uh, with, 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 who's absolutely flawless, and every ju- conclusion I jump to is correct. So, for example, if I assume that 
I can go out on the street and fall in love, I will. But if um, I ha- if any of the conclusions I jump to cause me any problems, I just don't know how to identify that without losing my ego, which is the, the, the effectively what stops the conclusion from being formed. And then when I go about life as if I'm a third person, as if I'm someone else, I don't jump to the same conclusions because I'm paying attention to everything in my day and suddenly I see my own life from a new pair of eyes. No one does that. The reason people jump to conclusions is because that is what is inevitable until they press pause on their life and start to pay attention to everything. Yeah, and you do that when problems arise. Like cognitive behavioural therapy, in essence, is about fixing problems in relationships, fixing problems in mood, fixing psychological um, uh, discomfort or or unwellness. Like that's what it's about. If you're not having any problems, then in essence you don't need to do this. But what we are saying is you can improve understanding and improve relationships if you go through the process even if you don't have problems if you don't want to do either of those things then carry on jumping to your conclusions which we all have to do because there's not enough time in a day to analyze whether you were you know rude or dismissive when you chatted earlier to the um uh, amazon guy dropping off your parcel or you know, or whether you didn't give your mum enough time when you spoke to her on the phone for 20 minutes and whether there was something else going on. There's not enough hours in the day to do it on even on a kind of like a human basic level or on an extreme, you know, um, family, family, uh, hierarchical importance relationship level that was terribly put but i'm guessing no excellent excellent that's exactly what i was about to say in reaction to that there's a hierarchy of importance to this and you just have to make that judgment yourself so for example if you are constantly behaving in a way that negatively affects someone in your family then it's a problem and it's something that is worth addressing and when you notice it's a problem then uh-huh. If you're that way inclined, you might be able to analyse your own behaviour and get out of the pattern, and then you don't need the therapist and the CBT method. But usually people can't do that, and the most effective thing is the therapist and the CBT method. However, if you are a little bit dismissive of the Amazon delivery person, you're not really chit-chatty, you don't smile and say, isn't the weather nice, you just functionally do the minimal that's required. You take the clipboard, sign the name, hold the package, shut the door, done. On the one hand, that person goes away without a a little added pleasant... Yeah, a little lift lift. to their moment. But you could live the rest of your life doing that. No one dies. Uh, you're perfectly effective in achieving your life goals and all your friends and family have zero negative consequence. So frankly, you don't have a problem. You don't have time to, uh, to address every conclusion you jump to. And so, yes, for the rest of your life, every delivery person is going to have an absence of a little delightful lift in their day because your smile never materialises. Your chit-chat about the weather is never forthcoming. But 
frankly, you can never address it till the day you die and jump to that conclusion that you don't need to pay attention when the doorbell rings and you will have no problems in life and you will achieve all your goals and feel self-actualized and fulfilled in life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can all use those kind of like really... Um, we can all generalise for comic effect as well, you know, about vegans and people that do yoga and people that are into crystals and Reiki healing and what's that other one? Uh, homeopathy and think they're all like absolute idiots. And we can live with that conclusion our entire life without it really affecting who we are. But if we want to break that down and think about why do we, you know, generalise... Because obviously, James, you keep saying jump into conclusions, but you're not actually, your criticism here of the process, in essence, is not just about jumping to conclusions. It's about the whole, all of these cognitive dissonances, all of these cognitive distortions. It's about th this idea, why are you bothering to think about your thinking? And and in essence, like we're, we're talking about the end that does matter. We're talking about the end that is about how we interact and how we build relationships, how we feel about ourselves and think about ourselves and how we understand that both our negative and positive characteristic traits. This is not about only seeing positive and only being um, uh, self-aware of the good in us, but also understanding the, the things that aren't so good about ourselves. So if you, if you have a, you know, like a... Um, a spectrum of importance, really, you would be looking at, I'm guessing, <laughs> plucking a figure out of the air, the top 25% of things that cause us problems. And that's the stuff you'd be trying to focus on in terms of what conclusions am I jumping to that are getting in the way of me being happier? What conclusions am I jumping to that are affecting others in a negative way? Um, and also, you've got to remember, there are people in this world who really don't give two shits about anyone they don't know. They might not give that much of a damn or a care about the people they do know. So the way that they affect and the way that they um, harm or, or have an impact on those around them, they're not going to be bothered to want to look at those things and question and analyse them. Well, that's um, what I'm... That, that, can, can I just jump in there? Because that was that's exactly what I was just thinking is one last thing on my mind on this particular topic, is that, especially if you're... Um, a psychopath and you basically use people as tools uh -huh. you're going you're going to be jumping to lots of conclusions that have a negative impact on others and you might be losing out on all kinds of potential value in your own life because you dismiss people because you don't see their you don't see utility because you've already formed a conclusion as to how useless they are um however you're extremely successful and you're very rich and people want to be around you and you're never short of lovers and you might feel like for the rest of your life you don't have a problem so i mean it's i guess it's just a i guess it's eeny meeny miny mo as to whether you live your life as an awful psychopath until you die but feel great about it and leave behind you a carnage of a wreckage of all the people you've encountered or do you stop yourself and say, well, this doesn't make sense. My life is perfect, but I'm going to assume it's not. And I'm going to pay attention and I'm going to address my um, cognitive distortions because um, if I jump to conclusions in an automatic way that seemingly has no bad consequences and life is perfect, but wouldn't it be interesting 
to know myself better, I'll see if exploring the alternative to that is even better than what seems perfect at the moment. Either you do that or you don't do that. I guess you're in a very lucky position in one sense to feel like your life is fine as it is and to feel like even if you explore the alternatives, they might be even better. Yeah, you you love bringing up the old psychopaths, don't you? Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think... Uh, uh, you know the the world needs you know if, if you just maybe talk about narcissists or those that have a sort of a certain traits of psychopathy but still live within the boundaries of you know uh, normal life and have some relationships even if they don't value them in the same way that emotional old m- me does um then you know those people still could benefit from uh thinking about um, how they interact and what conclusions they jump to, whether they mind read. And I'm sure there would be some benefit in their life, even if they don't become more compassionate or more considerate of others. Yes, but we kind of said, well, if it's not a problem, you don't need to think about it. And I was saying, well, how do you know that you have a problem and how to identify it when this is all automatic behaviour? And therefore, how can you possibly know what you don't know to know? You're, you're, you're now backtracking slightly. I'm, I'm, not, and- I'm not. I'm giving you another option. So, for example, in the business world, which is where you might find, you know, high up in the business world, the CEOs, you know, it's well known or well, a well concluded fact that lots of CEOs have psychopathic tendencies or are manipulative or Machiavellian or narcissistic. They know within the business world that there are personality types. They know that there are various systems of personality typing that you can work with. And they know that that will bring up conclusions about them as an individual that they can either use or disregard. So in that context, it's not a therapy, you know, softly, softly, nicely, nicely version. It's a kind of a more, and there's an academic version of that as well. You know, how do you want to succeed? What do you want to achieve? Who do you want to be? And that is a different way of looking at these, you know, character traits that we have or thinking traits or thinking styles and working with them if we choose to. This is all about choice. So, for example, I I want to be an influential politician Therefore, I have to interact with people and I have to stop Maud on the street and make her like me. So even though I'm actually a lizard person, I have to practice normal human interactions. And therefore, essentially, I'm kind of going through a form of um, self-analysis. I'm stopping myself from jumping to conclusions. I'm paying attention in the moment and I'm theoretically bettering myself, even though I'm just cynically doing it to get Maud's vote. Yeah, yeah. I think um, if I remember right, Mark Zuckerberg even learned not to lick his own eyeballs. Uh, So, yeah, there was that. I mean, I feel quite satisfied with number six then. I think it's extremely difficult to know what you... I mean, no one knows what they don't know. And it's, it's... When a problem becomes so bad, it's obvious. And even then, if you can't see what is going wrong you can't see where the problem is at least you know to seek help but i'm not satisfied with the way we were going at one point in this conversation which is kind of if your life is perfect then you don't need to do any of this okay okay you're (laughs) you're absolutely right okay so that is the last ever episode of private practice podcast (laughs) 
we'll we'll leave it there. There's not really much more to say. James's conclusion is right. <laughs> if you don't if you don't know you've if you don't know you've got a problem, there is no problem. Fuck it. Um, On you go. Could, as you could, were, as you uh, were. How could you not know me so catastrophically? We're on number six of ten. Obviously, I'm going to plough through with seven, eight, nine, and ten. So in at number seven. In at number seven this week is Magnification, uh, open brackets, Catastrophizing, with a Z on this web page, or Minimization. Um, now, this, again, I think you'll probably be able to relate to the previous three, you know, the mind reading, the disqualifying, the positive, mental filter, overgeneralizing, those ones. Um, uh, the example given on positivepsychology.com, uh, it says it's also known as the binocular trick for its stealthy skewing of your perspective. This distortion involves exaggerating or minimizing the meaning or importance or the likelihood of things. Pretty much covers everything there. So, as the example, an athlete who is generally a good player but makes a mistake may magnify the importance of that mistake and then believe that she is a terrible teammate. While an athlete who wins a coveted award in her sport may minimise the importance of the award and continue believing that they are only a mediocre player. Magnification. Or minimization. I think it is very, very similar to the mental filter mixed with overgeneralization. Mm, I'm not sure because it's very, we're talking about exaggeration or the opposite. Yeah, yeah, exaggeration or minimizing. I'm not sure that's, um, like people who, I mean, I know that I exaggerate for comic effect and therefore to whatever extent I do that on autopilot and sometimes when it's completely inappropriate I exaggerate and people tell me not to and I don't know that that's the same cognitive process as overgeneralizing it's more that it's uh it's so like for example to overgeneralize is to not be conscientious to exaggerate is in a way to be extroverted so they're coming from two i mean i'm not saying that like it's i'm not saying that as an absolute thing i'm just saying that to an extent when i exaggerate it's because i'm kind of being funny and showing off whereas if i overgeneralize i'm not really doing that at all if anything i'm doing the opposite i'm retreating yeah but in the example that i just gave um, an athlete who is generally a good player but makes a mistake may magnify the importance of that mistake and believe that it's, he is a terrible teammate. So I think that's you sort of you take some information and you apply it more generally. I th- there's, I'm just saying there's similarities, James. Similarities, okay, yeah. similar fucking larities. Um, I concur. Um, but but also with all of these, I think it, there's a. It's it's about which of these descriptions of what someone is doing fits most appropriately at the time with the thought that they're bringing either to the therapist or uh, that they're self-analyzing, you know? Because you might think, no, that that doesn't fit. I don't feel like I'm overgeneralizing. But then you read magnification and you're like, oh, God, yeah, yeah. I did hand in that piece of work late. And then for weeks afterwards, I was saying, oh, my God, you know, um, uh, I always hand in bits of work late. So my boss thinks I'm useless. 
You know, you've you've turned it into this huge thing, and in essence, you've generalised how you see yourself. Um, well, something like I have the worst job in the world, or my parents are the worst parents in the world, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, but but I suppose what I'm saying is like there's a there's a lots of different ways of describing these this in sorry this unhelpful thinking process, and and there's lots of different ways of describing these so you can then think about do your thoughts fall into any of these categories um and i don't think they are all completely discrete categories i think there's loads of overlap but anyway they have some examples here and their example for magnification is just or or minimization you exaggerate the importance of things such as your fuck-up or someone else's achievement, or you inappropriately shrink things until they appear tiny, your own desirable qualities or another person's imperfections. This is also called the binocular trick. So same one. And also it's got catastrophizing or minimization. So with magnification and catastrophizing, you kind of turn something that is a one-off event into something that leads to catastrophic consequences. You know, like you become useless or you are the worst at the job or everybody hates you. Um, so, you know, but again, like always loads of overlap. It's just another way of... Um, just you know, thinking about these things. Uh, in at number eight is one that we've definitely spoken about, uh, or at least hinted at before, which is emotional reasoning. And this may be, according to PositivePsychology.com, one of the most surprising distortions. It's also one of the most important to identify and address, they think. The logic behind this distortion is not surprising to most people. Rather, it's the realisation that virtually all of us have brought in, bought into this distortion at one time or another. Emotional reasoning refers to the acceptance of one's emotions as fact. Just because you feel it doesn't make it so, is what I think the radio headline is in that song where they say, just because you feel it doesn't make it so. Um, it can be described as, I feel it, therefore it must be true. Just because we feel something doesn't mean it is true. For example, we might become jealous and think our partner has feelings for someone else. That doesn't make it true. Um, and, of course, you know, when we think about it rationally, um, we kind of know it's reasonable to think about our feelings but not think of them as fact. We know that. But it is common nonetheless. So, so I didn't realise that was the end of the sentence. So you're you're saying to the listener, <laughs> even you can be stupid enough to believe that your feelings are facts, even though when asked, are feelings facts? You will sensibly say no, they're not. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you know that's a. <sighs> It's a, it's a very good question to ask yourself, you know, for, for of all the um, of all the cognitive distortions we're talking about and going through, you know, saying, am I emotionally reasoning and then thinking about, OK, well, what am I feeling at the moment? Has that affected what I'm thinking? Uh, you know, as the fact that I am, you know, really angry about it, does that mean that the driver who, you know, didn't signal is a fucking asshole, Or have I just decided that because I'm angry that driver is but hold on that's uh, this is um uh this is concerning me in the following way 
I feel anger at the wheel and then I jump to a conclusion that someone else is a certain type of person that's surely jumping to conclusions. I would, I would have thought that this is more like um, I feel hurt by someone, therefore they must have done something to hurt me. Uh, because I, my hurt can't be imagined. What, sorry, I don't understand. Is there a question there? I'm a bit confused. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure. So like, if, if, if I feel anger at the wheel and then I assume that another driver is a certain type of person, that's jumping to conclusions, the anger is still real because that person's behaviour has manifested in front of me and I have honestly indulged my anger. So therefore the feeling is to some extent true. And in this situation, you don't need someone to come along and say, no, your anger is stupid. Although, I mean, it might be that you have a problem with anger in that situation and you could respond better and you could be more realistic about the world and you could know that uh, that not everyone behaves in the way you think they should and therefore um, you can save yourself a whole lot of anger by not constantly being disappointed with the world. But compare that with my lover uh, has left me feeling hurt today Therefore, they must have done something to hurt me. The, the feeling of hurt could be a kind of fantasy uh, on the basis of, of, of ignoring something else in your life that you're not paying attention to. And therefore, it's, it is a kind of lie the feeling is not true, you're not hurt because the other person hasn't done anything. And so when you start to elaborate and flesh out the fantasy of all the things that the other person might have done, that's when the feeling was essentially a lie. But because you, have, you don't have evidence of what someone has done, you just have a feeling. Whereas when you're driving, you have evidence of someone else's behaviour. It happened, you saw it, so did all the witnesses, everyone agrees, and... So, so therefore your anger is honest, even if it's not the best reaction. But if you just have a gut feeling of being hurt by someone and you're starting to fantasise and imagine all the things that they could have done, they haven't actually done anything and your feeling of being hurt is then a lie. OK, OK, maybe, maybe I should go further with this and think more. So how about then the idea is someone's cut you up in the car and you get angry, you have a feeling of anger, anger, then you sit with it and actually it turns into the thought that maybe this person did it on purpose and that maybe the person actually, um, you know, wanted to show you you were a bad driver and, and there's, a, there's a string of thoughts attached to it. And then you perhaps believe some of those thoughts, whatever they could be. And that's come actually from the anger or the, the, the discomfort you felt from the experience rather than from the fact that any of it is true. So you're saying that you believe your honest feeling of anger that definitely happened justifies 
your fantasy of a whole load of things that have not happened. Yeah, yeah, but again, I don't think you go, oh, I was angry, and then I was thinking this. Like, the, the feeling that you were left with, whatever it was, you know, a, a sort of a an un, unidentifiable, sickening sensation, a, a deep kind of almost... Um, emptiness or, or in your stomach or, or a kind of a, an anxious sort of palpitation. You know, those things uh, mixed with sort of a, the, the emotional reaction to being cut up or, or, or someone passing in front of you without using the correct um, uh, highway code actions. It's left you in a state, an emotional state, which you then start building thoughts around. Rather than just pulling over, stopping and going, well, that I'm feeling awful for a few minutes. I'm just going to breathe. I'm just going to get through this. Why the hell is my mind racing about what kind of a driver that was and whether I'm a bad driver and whether they did it on purpose? Because none of that is relevant right then. I'm safe. They're gone. I'll focus on my driving. I'll let this emotion come back down. Oh, so this is directly going to mindfulness meditation. If you like, yeah. Because you don't have to be sat cross-legged in a Tibetan monastery having fasted for a month with nothing but the sound of panpipes to pollute your ears to be able to reach a point where you can recognise your emotions as a fleeting sensation that do not need to guide your course of action for the subsequent moments, be that five minutes or five hours. So then... When something happens to you, like someone behaves in a disagreeable way on the road, you don't then need to let that affect your behaviour for the rest of the day, your thoughts as they mushroom into fantasy, your actions as you take out that harboured anger on other people you encounter during the day and generally feel irritable. Instead, you can recognize the fleeting transience of the anger notice that a few minutes later if you pay attention to how feelings work it's just gone and the anger's not there anymore moments later there's no grounds to keep festering and dwelling on it i mean yeah that's part of it again i i I feel like when we're talking about it, I can't make it clear enough that there's lots of overlap and we're talking about the uh, generally how your thoughts can have an element of sort of fallacy. They're, they're distorted. They're, they're not clear. But we carry on acting on those thoughts. Like I said, I think there's loads of overlap with this. Perhaps if I was a CBT therapist myself, I might be able to give clearer examples. And perhaps if we had... You know, if we brought real problems uh, uh, to the to the uh, podcast, it, it might be a little bit clearer. But f- what I'm hoping to get for the listener is this idea that looking at all these thoughts and these are some of the ideas of how we can have um, a cognitive distortion and what what that can kind of lead to is the most important take home message. Um, but I might be wrong. Well, the thing that's worked, I think better for me than anything else is the idea of absurdity which takes away the seriousness of any emotion so let's say I am in a situation where I got on the train 
and nothing is how I expected or how I think it should be. Um, and I'm concerned that the person opposite is a threat in whatever way, whether it's just a tiny threat like their music is too loud or a major threat like they're planning on uh, robbing everyone in the carriage. Mm -hmm. They're a threat and I'm uneasy about it. And then just to make all of this worse, there's someone who comes and sits next to me and that person is obviously tense and they're irritated with something that they then think I've done that I haven't done or so on. And all of this is building up to me feeling aggravated, like injustice has been done to me that wasn't my fault. Like I need to get myself out of this situation, but I don't know how to. So then frustration is added. Um, and then I'm uncomfortable because of someone else's behavior around me. So all of these things then lead to a whole load of negative emotions that if left to thrive, these negative emotions will inform my behavior for the rest of the day. They'll inform the way that I interact with the other people. They'll inform my thoughts on the train. I won't be able to pay attention to what I'm reading in my book. I'll just be obsessed with what's going on around me. And then when, if all goes well and I get off the train and no one actually robbed me, attacked me or did anything, I'll be kind of uneasy after that. And you know when your mind is all over the place, you can't concentrate on anything, you can't read a book, you keep jumping from one thing to another, your mind is a mess, you can't make a decision. You you go past the supermarket and you think, should I go in and get something? No, I shouldn't. You go past and then you stop and you think, no, I should have done. So you go back and then you go in and you think, well, there's nothing here. Well, this was a waste of time. I should have just, um, I, sh I shouldn't have doubted myself when I said not to go in, but now I'm here anyway, so I'll get this. And then you walk out and you think, but why did I get, and, and so on and so on and so on. None of that needs to happen um, when there's, I find none of that needs to happen when there's an acknowledgement of the absurdity, the absurdity of the situation on the train, the absurdity of my ability to eat based on where a supermarket is and what they have on their shelves and all the rest of it. And that, and it, it just evaporates some of the importance of these things so that they don't possess me. And when that happens, I'm free again to pay attention to the words in my book or the thing that I'm listening to. In other words, it's almost like it doesn't matter what's happening on the train. As long as the threat is not really existential and there's not someone who's actually about to physically assault me and rob me as long as I'm not going to starve the situation with the supermarket you know I go in and I get something I don't go in and I don't get something that the absurdity of it takes away that importance that makes it possess your mind and and stir your mind so that you can't concentrate and be in the in the moment Whereas when you, when you feel the absurdity, the importance of all these things is lowered and you're able to concentrate. Absurdity, yes. OK, so in essence, that's your way of managing things, right? I find it useful, yes. And, and I think that's a very good trick, but I think um, it all just depends on the intensity with which we feel that emotion, because I think... A lot of people who would experience 
the threat or the anxiety of that train journey, their emotion becomes so intense and so, I don't know, um, panic-inducing or so claustrophobic or so threatening that as, as your brain enters a state of fight or flight you wouldn't be able to think like that and you would need to be trained to think like that. So just thinking, oh, this is absurd. In that moment, that situation is not absurd to them. And there's, you know, thousands of reasons why that could be the case. Yeah, I agree. I think it's... Well, I don't know, to be honest, if I've trained myself to use absurdity as a panic button, but I feel like sometimes... It's as if I'm going into autopilot and I press the panic button, which is to recognise absurdity, and then I feel like I'm sort of coasting through the air and things are happening and I'm no longer feeling stressed because I've pressed that panic button. But uh, So I probably wouldn't call it a panic button, but obviously it's you, but wouldn't it surely be like an escape button, yes. like a um, ejector seat? I'm no longer thinking like that because this is absurd. There's too much going on for me to even be able to properly process this. So eject, and now I'm in living in the land of the absurd, and I'll get off the train when I get to my stop. Yes. Well, I've got to say, that's a remarkable, remarkable skill you've developed for yourself there, James. I probably would get up and walk down to the other end of the train, possibly in tears. I might even have to make a phone call to talk to someone to calm me down. So, well done, you. Well, I mean, just to be... I don't... I don't... <laughs> I'm just. I, 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 how, how else could I say this other than to say, I do think that that is something I can do well that you can't do well. Whilst, yeah, I, I okay. agree. Yeah, yeah, I sounded flippant, but I did actually mean it. And it is, it is really good. Obviously, that's the kind of technique that people will teach you in therapy. Is how can you perhaps dis, sometimes they call it discriminate when you you're trying to think of the situation differently to how you believe it is. What is the difference in the situation? Actually, there's lots of other people on this train. Actually, you know, knife attacks on train are incredibly rare. Actually, I can get up and move away from this situation if I want to. You just actually press the uh, escape button in your brain and you're gone. That's lovely. <laughs> I mean, it has its limits. Obviously, uh, it, it requires the situation to not be an existential threat uh, and um, there's only there's obviously nothing I can do to control other people's behaviour I can only control my reaction to it but if other people's behaviour gets off the hook then me swimming around in absurdity um, isn't going to prevent consequences from happening although at least they might be less painful uh, when I come out of that situation and I've suffered some kind of loss there's an element whereby i could end up being a bit pathetic in that situation and another person may have handled it better than me in that they they don't suffer the same loss because they did take it seriously and they they managed to act to stop someone behaving in a certain way rather than managing their reaction and letting someone continue to behave in an unacceptable and antisocial way. And I certainly would struggle with that. Like if someone is behaving in a way that is generally considered unreasonable and they either don't know or don't accept it, there are certain people who can intervene in a successful way. So not just provoking them, having a fist fight and needing the police to cool everything off, but to actually successfully um, explain to that person 
that what they're doing is not acceptable, convince them that you will not accept it and that you will somehow stop it from happening and that they shouldn't fight you and therefore they stop behaving in an unacceptable way and you end up having a better train journey and so do all the people around you. I definitely don't think I'm any good at doing that. No, I think there's you know very few people that are any good at doing that. Um, that's a highly skilled de-escalation. Um, but obviously, uh, that is an entirely different episode, de-escalation, don't you think? You mean James? that's not number eight? So <laughs> that is not number eight. So we should move um, on to number nine. Yep, yeah, number nine. Okay, should statements. What do you know about should statements, James? Well, it depends. Are you asking me as someone who once taught modal verbs in English tutorials to French teenagers? Well, you could start with that. Go on. So, What's a should, should statement? As a British national who grew up speaking English fluently without really being formally taught grammar... I don't know if it was to do with the number of times that I changed schools between the ages of seven and ten or so, but um, I definitely feel like there was a period where essentially I was home-taught English and um, that didn't inc incorporate any kind of technical understanding of the structure of the English language. So then when it fast forward to when I'm suddenly an English teacher, you'd think, oh, well, I'm fluent in English. What could possibly go wrong? One of my very first tutorials was with a boy who was about 11 years old and I had his file. So he was in the middle of his English courses previously with another teacher. I was the new teacher. I'm sat on the Paris metro. I, I think, you know, obviously, way overly confident, obviously, as will become apparent. And only when I'm sort of like 15 minutes away from his house do I open his file to casually see, oh, what are we going <laughs> to learn today? Uh, only for the shock for me to discover that I'm going to be learning more than he's going to be learning because where he's got up to in his course is he's starting to use modal verbs. And I'm thinking, and what exactly is that? What the hell's a modal verb? Exactly. Yeah. And so then I'm on Google searching um, for modal verbs and looking at um, uh, should, would, must, ought to, might, could, etc. And I realise that simultaneous to this, I am also learning French. And I realise, oh, th if I have to teach English to a French person, there's th this, I'm not teaching something that directly translates so, for example, I should be a better person. You don't literally translate I should be a better person. You, you think about it in a completely different way. So when you're an English speaker, it just, it, it's just ingrained that you can tell yourself things with modal verbs. And I don't know how that's different for other people, but I'm, in, in the sense that I, don't, I, I, I wouldn't know what it's like to think without modal verbs. But as an English person, to think I should, I must, um, I can, I can't. I mean, can and can't, for example, directly translates into French. Should and should not doesn't. I don't know what it would be like 
for the language in my head to not have should and shouldn't. Well, th- this might explain something about the French psyche, although I will not make an assumption about that. Um, but in the uh, cognitive distortions, should and should not statements are particularly damaging. Um, they're about what we should do, what we ought to do, what we must do. And, of course, they can be applied to others. And it's all about imposing a set of expectations that possibly we're not going to meet. So attached to should statements is a lot of guilt about not achieving. Um, When we cling to should statements about others, we're often disappointed by their failure to meet our expectations. And these then can lead to anger and resentment. So with should statements, oh, I, you know, for someone who's quite depressed, oh, I should, you know, clean the house today. I should go shopping today. I should call my mum today. And then at the end of the day, when they haven't been able to do those things, because depression is a completely debilitating condition at times, they feel guilty, they feel bad, they feel useless, they feel more tired, more helpless, more... Um, uh, sorry, less valued within themselves. Their esteem is lower. Whereas if you say, I could, I could call my mum today, then you're giving yourself the option of being able to do it, but not putting the pressure on the fact that there is an outcome associated with your value about whether you do or don't do that, should, ought to, must. And, and we all do this. I really should do this. I really must do that. When actually there's there's very few things that we must do um and there's often a lot of options in the way that we can do those although we often think there's certain ways that we should do things that we should carry out certain actions that we certain levels we should achieve certain um uh, milestones that we must have um got under our belt at certain ages does that does that explain it to you james because i think it fitted very nicely with your understanding of of the fact that, you know, we in, in England do have should say. Well, so firstly, I should probably address that it is possible to say all these things in French. It's not like French people have no oh. comprehension of um, the idea of, of personal necessity, for example. But it's more like the, the sentence structure is different. Either you conjugate the verb to be conditional, where conditional is something that's not a fact, it's a hypothetical, or you restructure the sentence to be something like, it is necessary that, um, which is, it, it, it might have no difference. I'm just saying that maybe it is different because if I think I should compared with it is necessary that, it's more like there is an expectation I have of myself that comes from myself that I am not fulfilling, therefore I'm a bad person as opposed to it is necessary that there's an expectation from the world um, that they think I should meet and I'm probably not going to meet it. So I'm still a bad person, but I'm not, I'm not meeting their expectations as opposed to my own expectations. Um, So that's, that's a possible difference. But I mean, like when I look at you, for example, I think, isn't it, isn't it, uh, I'm sure I make it obvious that sometimes I feel it would be better that you had an effective way of shoulding yourself into action. Or maybe you should yourself too much and you don't do anything because you should yourself too much instead of coulding yourself into action. So I feel like you have your whole list of things that you know 
about. The list of things that would make your life better, you know they exist and you know they would make your life better and you know you're not going to do them for whatever reason. And I don't know if it's because there's a lack of should, like you don't tell yourself that you should be on time for something, for example. I mean, you were perfectly on time today. It's not like I'm sitting here nursing some kind of resentment of something that you did 50 minutes ago or anything like that. So this is hypothetical. But let's just pretend that we'd agreed a time today and you were not able to meet that time. I don't know if that's a case of not enough should or too much should. What do you think? Too much should, obviously, James. (laughs) I mean... I mean, I was never going to answer it the other way, was I? Yeah, there's not enough should in my life, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I hear what you're saying. You're right. It's very difficult to know what's going on for other people, so you might have to ask them and accept their answers. It's a, it's an it's an interesting and difficult one, I am sure. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's something we talk about in mental health a lot, the, a way of kind of sort of developing empathy is by thinking about all of the things that we don't know about another person and obviously there's a very famous what is it is it a i don't know what it would be called but like you know to before you judge someone you know walk a mile in their shoes although i'm sure it's been said um in a much more clear and 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 useful way before um but yeah like understanding that we all have different levels of should and should nots um, is a really useful way of thinking about what our own should and should nots are and, and how many sh- should we have and and actually do we need them at all? Uh, answer probably is yes if you ask James and me maybe not so much, you know. There's a few essentials definitely like we probably should breathe, probably should eat a few meals a day um, we probably should exercise, and we probably oh. should be good to yeah, others. Yeah, but w- have you exercised today? I have been for a walk. Would, is that f- fulfilling the goal of what you want from your daily exercise, or is it just that you had to go to for a walk to get something, and now you're saying, you know, you're retrospectively telling yourself that you've done exercise? Well, at the moment, I have um, a foot injury, so I can't really do much exercise. And later on, I'll go for another walk, so I get at least my 10,000 steps. Okay, a bad example. Um, Um, Shitty example. Stop it. (laughs) But um, let's just go back to lateness, and I'm not going to talk about you. I'm just going to talk about anyone being late. Comparing two different thought processes, I should be on time, I'm never on time, I'm now not on time. I meet the person I agreed to meet earlier. I apologise. I'm stressed. I had to run. I'm now sweaty. We don't have enough time to do the things we wanted to do. The other person feels let down, feels disrespected. They don't trust me. And next time, they'll either choose to meet someone else or they'll pretend that I need to be somewhere earlier than I actually need to be there, or they'll just go through the whole thing again and just keep on resenting me slightly more and more every single time. Is the problem there that I told myself I should be on time? Is it a linguistic thing whereby should basically means I know something 
And by saying it with should, it's I'm sealing my fate of failure. So now I'm going to go through with that failure and accept the consequences. Compared with saying, um, I could be on time today, but I know it's difficult for me. So let me just think about this. Um, I probably need this amount of time to do this. I probably won't have time to do all the things I want to do. So if I don't do any of these things that are unnecessary. I just do these essential things and I try and do them as quickly as possible. Then realistically, I think I can probably be there by that time. But now I'm going to be honest with myself and know that I don't guess very well. So I'm just going to arbitrarily add an hour. And then I end up arriving on time or even early as a result of saying could. Is it? Is it... Is it just as simple as the internal could works and the internal should seals a fate of failure? No, of course it's not as simple as that. There's, Damn. There's, there's, <laughs> hun, hun, there's hundreds of contextual factors. Um, but, you, you know, it, 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 you also described things from the other side, didn't you? You talked about how... Um, and I mean, it's a veiled conversation that you are having with me, despite the fact that you're talking about someone else. You know, the idea that if you're on time and you're ready to go and I'm not ready to go and I'm late, why, why if you have done it, should I not have done it? So in essence, you're the one who is creating this uh, emotion for yourself. Of course, my actions are not helping you feel comfortable in your um, what's it in your expectations being met. But you also talked about how then this set of thoughts triggered a that person is not reliable, that person can't be trusted. This and that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the way that basing a set of beliefs on erroneous information or incomplete data or a single event or something that you've kind of put together that doesn't actually equate to what has happened or ignoring context or um, uh, allowing for human factors or understanding differences in each other or knowing that people aren't always consistent. If you don't allow for all of those things in your analysis of what's happened, you can lead, it can lead to negative, critical, self-defeating, um, um, poor analysis that harms not only you but others, you know, in, in a kind of an emotional way. I fully accept that. And so let's, given the situation whereby uh, you and I decide to agree upon a time and we're going to do something for two hours, I wonder what that could be, and, mm -hmm. and it's only really satisfying for both of us if we have two hours available... And you're half an hour late, which means we only have an hour and a half, which means that it's not satisfactory in the moment. It's rushed and stressful, not as good as it could have been if you were on time. And so there is a tangible negative consequence to your lateness. I'm asking you to look at that for a minute and ignore whether or not I'm just humming along with no problems because instead of getting all angry and frustrated and irritated and indignant and feeling wronged by you, I'm just thinking, isn't the world delightful? There's so much variation in personality and behaviour that <laughs> I'm on time and he's late. What a wonderful piece of the 
colourful patchwork of life's diversity the two of us are. What a beautiful thing it is that we're not here at the same time. I will enjoy the experience of waiting for someone and then I will simply make the most of the limited amount of time together knowing that it's because of the the real goodness of our differences in personality. So I've got that absolutely perfect. But that doesn't change the fact that you have shortened our time from two hours to one and a half hours. And that is a tangible consequence. That tangible consequence (laughs) impacts me negatively. Let's say that I um, manage my emotions perfectly and I minimise that impact to being virtually insignificant and I move on with my life. Okay, let's... but yep. you're assuming that I'm not going to do that and I'm going to behave in the worst possible way and I'm going to start jumping to conclusions about your character, your um, behaviour with value judgments, and therefore the, the problem is entirely yep. mine and you can just sit back knowing that there's nothing wrong with you being late and I have a problem with how I value judge you. At no point, at no point have you considered the consequences of the shortening of our time from two hours to one and a half hours because of your own failure. But without a conversation with with me about this, you would never you would never know that without the, the thing that you consider small talk, without understanding context, you you know, and without dismissing it because you don't react and behave in the way that say I do you would never get to the bottom of it and you would never learn and you would never um, appreciate or understand uh, my experience do you know the interesting thing about the interesting thing about this conversation is now this has been going on for so long during this episode that the listener probably now believes that I turned up late Either now or last week or the week or the day was it the week before that in recording these episodes in our newfound energy for this season when that ha- that hasn't happened. That hasn't happened so, at all. You've been you've been you were perfectly punctual today. You were perfectly punctual last time. Frankly, I can't remember the last time you were late. I just know that it has happened before, and <laughs> but it clearly still is affecting you because that is what you chose for the should coulds and could nots discussion. But the thing is that you're not the only person in my life who is late for things, and I'm taking all of my experience of other of men of multiple people being late and i'm bringing it to this example and you're probably thinking that you're the only person in my life who has ever been late and everything i'm saying is entirely about you although frankly i did just give an example that was entirely about you so you'd be justified for doing that however mm-hmm. well if, if we just keep with i mean let's just once again establish you were not late today and you were not late the last time and i can't remember the last time you were late but <laughs> thank you yes but given that i do remember vividly i can feel the the recollection of times when you had moments or d- days rather when you'd agreed a time and you failed to commit to your word and every time i feel like there's a there was an honest understandable 
and justifiable reason that came from you. Um, and given that I listened to it, I must have virtuously given you the space to express your reasoning rather than just shouting you down as being um, a deplorable who should be on time and isn't. Um, yep. I also feel like over the years that happened multiple times, even though definitely not today or the last time, over the years, uh-huh. over the years that happened multiple times. Therefore, what does it matter that every time there's a really good justification when there is a pattern of behavior over time that is damaging, that you're not willing to accept, apologize for? Or, and I don't mean just like, sorry, 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 I'm late. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I don't mean that kind of I mean, like acting on it so that it doesn't happen again. I mean, obviously, given how punctual you were today, there's every uh, possibility that you've completely acted on it and it has worked wonderfully successfully today. Yes. I mean, I think this is a very, very important conversation. <laughs> and I think, it's, I think it's very important... Answer the question about yourself. Both. No more abstraction. <laughs> <laughs> now, the... Uh, our wonderful listener is is right now. I'm uh, I'm 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 sensing that our wonderful listener right now is thinking. Blimey, I've got a lot from today's episode. I I really do understand some of the some of the uh, core examples of um, distorted uh, thinking, um, and and I remember that. Uh, that they were also going to talk about cognitive bias. Now, I'm just going to leave the should statements for a short while um, because I can. And we may well come back to that after I've had some time to digest and process and really think about James's arguments, which I think are very interesting and almost succinctly put. But I did want to just say to the listener that we will still be finishing off this in part three of cognitive distortions and cognitive bias. We might even get to a part four because this is this is hot. This conversation is is emotional. It's powerful. There's depth to it. There's intrigue. And there's so many different directions we could go in. What I wanted to just summarise with before we say goodbye for this afternoon, I just wanted to summarise, or sorry, I just wanted to point out that we do still have two more cognitive distortions um, <laughs> to talk about, which, we, we which we're going to have to start <laughs> with. We haven't managed to get through all of them today, so we're going to come back to those next week. We're going to come back to um, labelling and mislabeling and personalisation. And then for the end of the, or the second half of the episode next week, we're going to look at con- um, fallacies. We're going to look at control fallacies, fallacy of fairness, fallacy of change, and always being right. All I heard was phallus. We will be looking at fallacies. And heaven's reward fallacy. So that's what we'll be looking at next week. And then we will come on to uh, cognitive bias. And that, that, could, that could open up a whole can of worms as well. So there's, there's all kinds of things that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. Um, James, is there anything that you wanted to say? And, and like I said, I will come back to an apology and or discreditation of your previous remarks at the start of next week's episode. 
I have another question to see if you're actually a psychopath. Okay, go on then. Well, you know, based on um, the Robert Greene's 48 Laws of Power. So normally, I, ha- normally I have the book with me and I read out the paragraph, but I know the one that I want to do today and I've just realised that the book isn't in the bag where I thought it was. But comically, the law that I had in mind for today is called Say Less Than Necessary. So I'm not going to read the introduction paragraph to that law and I'm going to pass over to you. Say less than necessary. Is that something you use as a tool to get what you want out of people? Is it something that you do naturally or is it something that you can't do because you're a blabbermouth, a chatterbox? I think my reply to that will be succinct. Maybe. Okay, well, just to react to the, the, the law as a tool of power... There are situations where, especially in work scenarios, if you're in a meeting with people you don't know that well, or even it doesn't matter if you know them or not, but if, if, if somehow you're representing an aspect of your work and you talk and talk and talk and talk, and in the process of talking, you erode someone's confidence that they had that you knew what you were doing because in saying too much you maybe contradicted yourself a bit or were a bit inconsistent and if you hadn't said all those words they would have just had their slightly unrealistic expectation of you that you always know what you're doing and you've just eroded that and now they're slightly doubtful of you and they have in the back of their mind that they should probably micromanage you so you've brought on that problem by saying too much um, maybe in some kind of negotiation situation, you don't want to reveal your cards. And if you just blabber and chat about everything that spills into your mind um, indiscreetly, then you lose your negotiating power with the other person and they maintain it. And then also with sort of like seduction, if you're on a date with someone, if you give your entire life history on day one, there's no allure and uh, uh, promise of mystery to be solved by the other person. They just think, they feel like they've been married to you a lifetime and it's time to divorce. (laughs) Okay, well, all I can say for that is I do think sometimes less is more. You can be intriguing with giving people a snippet. You can tell someone I'll tell you later or I've got something to talk to you about or um, um, when I get round to you know making some time I'm going to come over and I'm going to explain everything that you need to know so there's different ways of kind of dropping the idea that the other person might want to know more and might need to know more but not giving them the information that you know at that stage kind of keeping yourself with a little bit of power and being the one in control and I wouldn't say I do that with some Machiavellian purpose but definitely uh, you know bringing a little bit of intrigue into the conversation that I might want to have with that person that's definitely something I do. I think I'm starting to build a picture here but I don't know if I want this to be the picture and I'm looking for it and finding it where it doesn't exist because I want it or because it's actually the case and the picture is this that take this example you manipulate other people 
all the time by saying less than necessary, knowing that it makes you seem like a more mysterious, exciting person, knowing that you can get more out of them, knowing that it will achieve the kind of result that you need. And then you come on here and you say that you say it in such a friendly way that it sounds like you, it's some kind of charity you're doing uh, and that you're not actually manipulating other people. And so like if, I, if I then put this in a more jokey way, you are absolutely the sort of like lizard-skinned psychopath playing everyone as a pawn on your chessboard, but you're so successful at it that the way you say that that's not you and you're not like that and that if ever you do any of these things, it's um, part of a balanced diet of socialising, it's because you've perfected it to the point where you can do it and then convincingly say that you don't do it. Um, I think some of what you said was true. <laughs> okay, and uh, I will leave it up to the very smart, astute, hard-working, dedicated listener to work out which parts were and weren't true. And perhaps if James quizzes me next time... Um, on Private Practice Podcast, I will answer some more of his questions. But until next time, it's a huge thank you from me to the listener and also a huge thank you to James for his patience, his dedication and his lack of judgment towards others and their complex, stressful, pressurised lives that they make complex and stressful and pressurise themselves. And if they were better, like me, they wouldn't have half the problems that they perceive. Yeah, uh, just quick aside. I'm going into hospital for major surgery. Uh, but other than that, we will get back to you as soon as we possibly can. So if you guys could take care of yourselves and take care of James, because he's very vulnerable uh, um, and also he's going to miss me whilst I'm not here so I'll see you next time um, goodbye from the Private Practice Podcast Studios London and if we're dishing out thanks then I would like to thank Dan for his sublime punctuality today flawless I could not criticise a thing about how immediately he responded to the call at exactly the time he had chosen you're welcome and it's goodbye from me in the private practice studio in Casablanca, Morocco. Preston from the ordinary boys. 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 <laughs>